0: As we come to hear from God's word, let's bow our hearts in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning, Lord, with, with much weakness. We know our own frailties, Lord. We know the, the weakness of our own hearts. We know our own sin. We know our own shortcomings, Lord. But we come trusting in our Savior, your Son. And we hold on to nothing else but the blood of Christ. Lord, you know the, the issues, the sorrows and the sighs, the fightings and the fears going on in our hearts. But As we come to hear your word, Lord, open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to put away all distractions and to listen to your word, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit work powerfully through your word to convict, to encourage, to uplift, to uphold, perhaps even to rebuke the hearts of each one of us. Um, And we pray, Lord, that you will bless us with your power and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the last few weeks, (coughs) excuse me, I'm hoping I'll be able to get through the sermon without too many coughs. (coughs) But over the last few weeks, (coughs) as I was preparing for the sermon, I was reminded of a number of sayings and phrases that we use. One of the phrases last week I was reminded of was the best laid plans of men and mice oft go astray. And as many of you might know, I was meant to preach last week and at uh, short notice Bob very kindly stepped in and was able to take over. And the older I get, I think the more I see the wisdom in those words. But I know that though the plans of men and mice may often fail, the plans of God are eternal and secure. From everlasting to everlasting, God's word, God's plan is secure. and can never change. It is unshaken, and as the late R.C. Sproul used to say, there's not one random molecule running about in God's universe. Everything he has set in place from eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. And we can rest assured that whatever happens in life, (coughs) God has it in control. So let's pick up our passage today from Matthew chapter 5. From verse 38. Just before we get into our passage itself, maybe I'll just take a couple of minutes to set um, the context and remind ourselves (coughs) of where we are. At this point, we're picking up the passage from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, The sermon, often referred to as the most famous sermon in the world ever preached. We've looked at the first section of the Beatitudes from verse 1 in chapter 5 of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we looked at what it means to be salt and light. And I want to pick up two things, critical things, in that passage before we step into our passage today. One, from chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And again, in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Those are two critical verses that we need to hold on to as we try and unpack our passage today. Jesus goes on to unpack um, in the rest of the section the categories of what that righteousness looks like across murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, and as we're looking today, across retaliation and love. As I was reflecting on this passage, I was wondering what it would have felt like to the original hearers of Jesus. And I wonder... You know, they, Jesus was preaching on a mount. I wonder if they came, perhaps to listen to a bit of a pep talk, a bit of a self-help, motivational talk, a pat on the back. And instead, they've been pummeled. You know, like a box in a in a ring. Jesus seems to lash out at them and say, "You know, you think you're righteous." Well, I'll tell you, your righteousness needs to be greater than that of the Pharisees, who were, you know, the peak, considered the most radical, most holy people at that time. You think the physical act of adultery is evil? I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. You think murder is evil? I tell you, if you burn with anger at your neighbour. You've committed murder in your heart. And as they're listening, you can feel a sense of almost being pummeled by the weight of Jesus' words. And perhaps today's passage will almost be a you know, kind of a knockout blow. As Jesus says, things like, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him your left as well. If someone wants to sue you for your... <coughs> tunic, let him have your cloak. Seems to be upping the ante as he goes on. This is a a well-known passage to many of us, a passage that many in the world know, even those outside of the church. The phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is quite famous and well-known. And I want to read Let me read verse 38 and 39. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. There's our first saying from the passage, an eye for an eye. In one sense, it sounds so primitive, doesn't it? When I was in my youth, I remember hearing a person preach from this passage, and they said, you know, this passage shows how the Old Testament was so full of vengeance and punishment, and Jesus brings in grace and mercy, and it's entirely different, and so on. And perhaps you can see why that person would think that. But I take you back to verse 17, when Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And we need to hold that clearly as we try and interpret the passage. Jesus is not giving us a new law here. Nor is he giving us a new interpretation, but he is giving us the true meaning of the Old Testament law. It's not that somehow God in the Old Testament was full of vengeance and and wrath, and somehow he's changed. His character has changed now. No, no. God and God's character is always the same and endures forever, it never changes. Excuse me. <clears throat> the critical phrase in verse 38 is the way Jesus uses the words you have heard it was said. The preacher Sinclair Ferguson makes a really interesting point that throughout the passage Jesus keeps saying you have heard it said. You have heard it said, not, it is written. This is a quite a contrast from the way Jesus quotes Scripture when he battles the devil in chapter four. When we read about the way Jesus, uh, when the devil was trying to tempt Jesus, he kept saying, "It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. Do not put the Lord your God to test." At that point, Jesus is quoting scripture. What he's quoting here is not scripture. He's quoting the way scripture was being misinterpreted by the Pharisees and the rabbis of that age. What Jesus is speaking on is not the written law, but the way the law had been misapplied by the Pharisees. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was actually from Scripture, from the law. There's three separate passages in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19 that talk about this. Let me read Leviticus uh, 24, verse 19 and 20, just for context. If anyone (coughs) injures his neighbor... Whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. (coughs) So it is from the Old Testament law, but this was a specific instruction given to the judges, (coughs) to those who are meant to provide civil... (coughs) um, justice at that time. It was not meant to be applied in personal retaliation, in personal relationship with one another. In legal terms, there is a saying called lex talionis, which is a Latin term referring to this fact, that the punishment must fit the crime. This is the foundation for all legal systems across the world, retributive justice. The punishment must fit the crime. As much as the crime was, the punishment must, you know, match that. It must not be less than that, but it must not also be more than that. And you can see how important this would have been in the culture of that age. Now, we hear about people in those days when one person... Committed an act of cruelty, they went out and destroyed a whole village or a whole city, and they would set fire to to a whole village, and, and wars would erupt because of one person doing one act of crime against another. And the law was set to restrict that, to restrain that, to ensure that the punishment would not exceed the boundary. But what was meant for the judges to be used in a judicial context, the Pharisees and the rabbis had misinterpreted and applied it <clears throat> for personal retaliation. If someone hits you, hit them back. You know, stand up for yourself. And we hear about it today, isn't it? There's a saying we hear today, don't get mad, get even you know it speaks to that same principle isn't it give it right back assert yourself and that's what the Pharisees were saying in that day and that's what the world tells us today stand on your rights but this is what Jesus says but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. <clears throat> now you can almost you can almost picture the jaws drop as Jesus say that. Really? If someone strikes me on the right cheek, I need to turn the left? <laughs> Again, it's important for us to look into the context of this verse or else we can draw some really unhelpful applications some people have um, used this verse as a means to say that there should be no police forces no military that there should be no kind of self-defense the great uh, author Count Tolstoy you know the famous author he said that this verse prohibits the establishment of police and military do not resist an evil person has been interpreted as a call to you know just lay yourself down and be a doormat when when you get attacked I think it's important though to look at the context of what Jesus is saying Commentators helpfully note Jesus' reference to the right cheek. Now, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, in a society and a culture of predominantly right-handed people, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, it's actually a backhanded slap. So imagine a you know, backhanded tennis shot. They're doing a backhanded slap. So what does that mean? May not mean much in our context and our age, in our culture, but a backhanded slap in the culture and in that age was a huge insult. It was a humiliation. It was like it was almost equivalent to being spat upon and it, it, I think apparently even today in the Middle East, a backhanded slap is considered. One of the peak insults that you can give a person. And in that culture where shame and honor is so important, you can imagine how the people would have felt. What Jesus is saying is be willing to face insult, be willing to be mocked for being my disciple. Instead, of lashing out in retaliation. Instead of saying, don't get mad, get even, let God deal with it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. My friends, I don't know if uh, in our culture we do any backhanded slaps. But I was thinking, you know, one of the biggest contemporary mediums for insulting each other is social media, isn't it? We see that on Twitter when people put all kinds of vile abuse. Especially the youth of our age, all kinds of things go on there and people go back and forth retaliating against each other. There was another saying I, I don't quite agree with, but You must have heard, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that true? I don't think so. Words can be incredibly harmful, incredibly painful. And there's a desire in each of us, isn't it? To give our, to get our back, to give it back when someone insults you. To put them in their place. To show them up. Jesus is pointing as he will go on to elaborate in verse 43 onwards that his disciples are not to be keen to stand on their rights on their privileges or to retaliate in personal attacks but to show grace and mercy and kindness even to those who insult us It's a hard saying, isn't it? Now, before I move on from that verse, I want to add a word of caution. This section is not saying, and I want to make it really plain, that this is not saying that people in situations of abuse and danger are to just keep putting themselves in that place. This is not a call for a victim to keep being abused nor is it a call for people to be doormats and to keep taking abuse it is a call to show love even in the face of persecution and provocation it is a call to show grace in the midst of confrontation and I want to be uh, just make it clear that if there is anyone listening who is in a situation of abuse, the first step is to remove yourself from that abuse and to reach out to Ray or one of the elders for counsel. We're called to use discretion and wisdom in applying these passages, and it's not something that we just take to some sort of <clears throat> unhelpful extremes. In much a similar vein, Jesus continues expounding what it means not to retaliate, verses 40 to 42. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again... um, it's useful to set the context on this. Remember, Israel at this time was under Roman occupation. And under Roman law, a soldier could, could requisition uh, an Israelite to carry their lord, to carry whatever things that the soldier had to carry for a distance of up to one Roman mile. That was the law. And again, Jesus' principle is... Instead of standing on your rights, go above and beyond. Go two miles. And we have the well known saying go the extra mile, go the second mile. That's derived from this verse. <laughs> the principle remains. What he's is saying is instead of being focused on yourself and your rights and your pride and your ego, turn to look, to seek, to serve your fellow human beings in love seeking God's honor and God's glory Jesus draws the same principle in the other two illustrations now the, the Israelites in those days they had pretty much two garments an outer garment, the tunic and the inner garment, the cloak and no doubt, as Jesus is saying this, the original hearers would have had a smile on their lips. As he's saying, if they sue you for the outer garment, give them your inner garment as well. It, because it means, in a sense, they're standing there without any clothes. You know, The point Jesus is saying is that this is a love that is incredibly radical. That is not something that is capable human beings. This is a love that is otherworldly. He's not commanding people to give away everything and to stand there without clothes but he's commanding them to show love that goes above and beyond what people think is normal. To give up your preoccupation with your pride with yourself with your ego With your rights, and let God be the one ruling in your heart. Again, we're called to discernment, we're called to wisdom, to prudence, yet we're commanded to love. To love even those who persecute us, even those who hate us, even our enemies. Now, as I stand here, I know I'm I'm quite conscious that it's one thing for me to say this. It's one thing for me to preach this. It's an entirely different thing for us to be able to do this, isn't it? I can see, I can sense the question in our hearts, is this even possible? In a world like ours, in a society where we're called to stand up for our rights and we're urged to litigate and sue for the you know at the drop of a hat. Is this some sort of wishful thinking that Jesus is giving us? I don't think so. Because Jesus says, you know, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And I want to remind you of what Nat pointed to a couple of weeks ago when. Jesus interacted with the rich young ruler and after that interaction he said these words what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And there's a saying we can hold on to. I want to spend a few moments, looking at that interaction with the rich young man, he comes up in Matthew chapter 19, and I'll just read a few verses just for context. Matthew 19 from verse 16, now a man came to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which one's the man inquired Jesus replied Do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not give false witness and so on All these I have kept the young man said What do I still lack All these I have kept you can see that that self-confidence that man had You know I've kept it I'm righteous And, you know, the problem with that rich young man was not that he was rich, but that his God was himself, his pride, his wealth. Those were his idols. He hadn't even kept commandment number one. You shall have no gods before me except me. And he thought he'd kept all the commandments perfectly. his pride, his wealth, his self-righteousness. I'm so perfect. And how easily we fall into that same trap, don't we? We think like that rich young man. We're so much better than other people. We're we're good enough. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I don't do this. I don't do that. I'm better than that. But as we listen to Jesus' words on what it means to keep the law, what it means to show love to even those who persecute us, we begin to see, I think as Paul puts it in Romans, how far short of the glory of God we fall. and The law is meant to show us that that we are utterly incapable of keeping this law, of how pitifully weak we are in the presence of a holy God. And really, it's only when we turn in humble repentance, only when we recognize our own poverty, blessed are the poor in spirit, Only when we mourn for our sin, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And only when we turn in humble repentance to God and put our faith in Christ, that he gives us the strength to do the impossible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And I want to pick up just a couple of examples Think of a man like like Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He was kicked out by his brothers. He was cast into slavery, sold into slavery. The very family who was meant to love him and care for him discarded him like a useless piece of rag. (laughs) Think of the years of humiliation, as he was forced to work as a slave and then he was forced to suffer in prison for no sin that he'd done. And then remember the time when he was in a position where he could retaliate against his brothers. You know, when they came looking for grain, when when he was in a position of power and it was up to him to retaliate and, you know, just give it back to them. Don't get mad, get even. This is my time, he could have said. But he forgave them. You meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. He restrained himself. This is not something he could have done by himself. This is something God gave him the strength to do think of a man like David. Remember David we when we looked at his life from the book of 1 Samuel before he became king he was chased from pillar to post by King Saul and he could barely sleep except with one eye open and then he had the chance to retaliate twice King Saul was in his grasp And yet he restrained himself, not willing to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Trusting in the Lord, resting in his time, in his will. How easily he could have, you know, taken his back and said, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, here. But he trusted in God and in God's timing. Now time does not permit me, but I could tell you of many more, you know, of Peter and Paul and and even in, you know, in more recent times, people like Jonathan Edwards or Amy Carmichael, the saints who have gone before us. Who are willing to bear insult and persecution and slander for the sake of their Savior. But I want, my friends, as Jesus does to raise our eyes upwards. Let me read verses 44 onwards. In fact, from verse 43 onwards, You have heard it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. My friends we show love not to impress god not somehow to gain our way into heaven not to impress other people or to show ourselves better than them we show love because he is our father because we are his children he is a father filled with love and mercy and grace and as Now last week as Bob so beautifully demonstrated he pours out his love in abundance that we might pour it out to others. If we are his children then we bear his character. We love because we've been loved. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We give freely Because God has given us freely everything that we need, everything that we can want, and more, in Christ. And oh, what love he has showered upon us. In Romans 5, we read that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, he showed us love, he reconciled us by the death of his Son. That's what Jesus is picking up on. Love your enemies. That is God's character. While we were enemies, he showed love, showered love on us. Grace and mercy to us who were enemies deserving of wrath and condemnation. Let me point you, my friends, to the Son of God, to our Savior, He came willingly. He took on flesh as a man. He was beaten. He was persecuted. He was slapped. Slapped on his right cheek, on his left cheek. Slapped, whipped, beaten, mocked, persecuted. The king of the universe stood like a sheep before its shearers. Silent, without retaliation. Look to the cross, my friends, for love that was poured down for you and I. Now God's standard is incredible. You know, in, in verse forty four, Jesus forty-eight, sorry, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I look to myself and I know how weak and how far shot I fought. Now, I don't have to be told about my own flesh, how sinful it is. And on top of that, you know, we have an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion, a wily lion. And we have the influence of the world dragging us down. And how easily we're swayed by that. How can we possibly keep this word? how can we be holy as our father is holy it is my privilege my friends my joy and my privilege to point you to the one who laid down his life for you that you may have joy the one who takes your burdens on himself come to me all who are Weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The one who gives you true and lasting peace gives you the Holy Spirit to be able to keep his word, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to keep his word by his strength. I think Ray a couple of weeks ago mentioned, you know, the way to live out the Christian life is to live it in the light of the cross, to take our weaknesses, present it before Christ at the cross, and seek his help, remembering that we have an advocate with the Father ever ready and eager to help us. And I want to finish not with a saying, but the words of a well-known, well-loved hymn by Charles Wesley. (laughs) And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? For a worm such as I, my Savior laid his head. May those words be engraved in our hearts, my friends, as we seek to live out Christ's words. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob (laughs) is the same God of you and I. The same God who gives us every good gift, every blessing to keep his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father and our God, we stand amazed and astounded at the love that you have poured out on us. We recognize, Father, our own weakness, our own frailties, but we come seeking your strength in putting to death the things of the flesh, in living a life of love and not retaliation. a life that is pleasing and honoring you and not seeking to please our own selfish egos. Help us by fixing our gaze at the cross, reminding ourselves of your love, Lord, reminding ourselves that we have an advocate, an ever-present advocate, a great high priest through whom we can freely approach the throne of grace. May our lives be lived seeking to honor and please you, Lord, in every aspect of our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.